Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Gospel record of Mark in chapter number 7. The Gospel record of Mark in chapter number 7. We're continuing to go through our series of the Gospel record of Mark, Walking with Jesus Christ. And as a reminder, that the Gospel record of Mark is the Gospel record of action. That it's written to the Roman mind. And the Romans weren't looking for a lot of discourses. They weren't looking for a lot of talk. They respected action. And so there are 16 chapters within the gospel record of Mark. 12 of those chapters start with the word and. And it is continually showing the actions of Jesus Christ. As he's interacting with people. As he's having... Um, miracles occur as he's dealing with different folks. We, it is focusing on the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ to show that he indeed is God and that we can trust him because of his works. So notice with me, if you don't mind, in the book of Mark in chapter number seven. Mark and chapter number seven. And notice with me, starting at verse number one. Mark chapter seven and verse number one, the Bible says this. Then came together unto him the Pharisees, and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there are be, that when they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the traditions of the elder, but eat bread with unwashed hands. And he answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother. Whosoever curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, if a man shall say unto his father or mother, that is, Corbin, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And you suffer him no more to do aught for his father or for his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things 
ye do ye. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from within, without a man, that entering into him that can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house of the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing that from without entereth into a man, it cannot defile him? Because it entered not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceedeth evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the gospel record of Mark in chapter number 7? The gospel record of Mark chapter 7, and notice with me in verse number 13. Mark 7 and verse 13, notice this, making the word of God of none effect. Making the word of God of none effect. And with the Lord's help, we want to preach this message here that Jesus Christ is getting across to these folks of the word of God, that the word of God be made of none effect. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God and thank you for the great privilege it is to gather together here. And as we open up your Bible, we're just asking that you would open up in a special way, that you would help us to understand, that you would give us the understanding that Jesus had asked of his disciples. We're asking that you would just make it timely, let it be applicable, let it be exactly what we need in our lives to meet the spiritual needs that we have, that you would use it to draw us closer to you. Again, I know that there's no good thing within me and there's nothing I can do to be a help to these folks. So the best that I know how, I surrender myself to you. My goals, my ambitions, my desires, I give them all to you and ask that you fill me with your precious spirit so you can get your own work accomplished. Be with my lips. Let me say it in the way and the manner that I ought to say. Help it to be clear and easily understood. Thank you again that we can trust you and depend upon you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there are plenty of powerful statements within the Word of God. There are some statements that stick with you. There are some statements that go in your mind. There are some statements that make you think. This is one of those statements. To make the Word of God of none effect. Now, in order to really understand the jaw-dropping nature of that statement... Perhaps we need to quickly look and see how powerful the Word of God is. Turn with me if you don't mind. We're coming back to Mark chapter 7. But turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter number 4. The book of Hebrews in chapter number 4. The Bible does say that the Word of God, it is powerful. There's a lot that the Word of God can do. 
Notice, if you don't mind, in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. The book of Hebrews chapter 4, and put your attention with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 12. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the Bible says this, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing evil to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Notice what this phrase says about the word of God. It says, for the word of God is quick. That word quick carries the idea that it's alive. Do you know that this is a living book? It's not a dead book. It is a living book. And it's able to feed your need. It is able to give you what you need. It's able to speak to you to prepare you for your day. It's able to speak to you and to show you what is wrong. It's able to speak to you and guide your path. It is alive. It is a living book. You know, there are some books that you can know everything about. You may have a favorite movie that you could say every line. You've squeezed every bit of thing from that movie. But you can never do that to the Word of God because it is a living book. You can never know everything about the Bible. There's something more to dig into it. It is because it is not a dead book, but it is a living book. The Bible says, for the Word of God is quick and powerful. How powerful is it? Well, the root word of powerful here is the word dunamis, where we get our English word of dynamite. You know what kind of power this is? It's explosive power. It's like throwing a grenade. You're taking a track, you throwing a grenade in someone's house, just waiting for it to explode, just waiting for it to do something. God's word is powerful. The Bible gives other descriptions of how powerful it is. It says in the book of Jeremiah, it's like a hammer that breaks through the rocks. Even the hardest heart is no use to God's word when it's applied correctly. The Bible talks about that it is like a fire that burns inside. God's word could do something. The God's word, it gives all kinds of descriptions of how powerful it is. Notice what else the Bible says in Hebrews 4, uh, chapter 12, or chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It says it's sharper than any man-made sword. Now, man has been able to make some pretty amazing swords. Probably one of the top of the list of the most amazing swords would be the old ancient Simrai sword. And they had a certain way that they would make the sword, and there was a certain process where they would take the metal and pound it out, and then they would fold it over and pound it out and then fold it over, and they would fold it uh, a good swordsman, a legendary swordsman, would fold it over a thousand times. And what this would do is it would make the blade so it was flexible, but also very, very stable. And then they would sharpen it. Then what the swordsmen would do who made these samurai swords is they would run it through a couple of tests. One of them was called a silk test. And what they would do is that they would hold the blade so the blade was facing up. Then they would take a piece of silk, which you know is so fine, that cloth, and they would just drop it on the blade. And as it would fall upon the blade, that blade would be so sharp that that silk would actually cut just as it falls upon the blade. Now, if they took that piece of silk and it didn't cut all the way, maybe it was frayed, maybe it just, that something got snagged into it, that sword would not be acceptable. They would have to start again. 
Then after they received, the Simurai would pick up the sword, he would do another test. Now the Simurai, not saying it's right, but just saying it was what it was, that the Simurai had the power of life and death over the peasantry. And so when they would pick up the sword, they would go out and say, you, 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 line up. And they would line them up, heel toe, heel toe, five of them right in a row. Then they could take their samurai sword in order to test it out. They would take the sword and with one blow, they would see how many bodies it could cut through in just one cut. If it went through three and got snagged in the four, that was a pretty good sword. The legendary sword could cut through five bodies all at once. Now that is a sharp sword. But you know what the Bible says? For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That the word of God is even sharper than any sword that could be made. How sharp is it? Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The Bible is so sharp that it could actually divide between the soul and the spirit. Now that's something intangible to us. And that the soul and the spirit often bleed together. But the Bible could actually divide the two. Notice how sharp it is. It's so sharp that it could go through the joints and marrow. If you took a piece of bone and you would look inside of the bone, it would have a marrow. The sword, the word of God is so sharp as a visual aid that it's so sharp it could actually go in between the marrow of the bone and the actual bone. Now it's painting a word picture. It's trying to show us in a, in a poetical way how sharp this is. How sharp is it? It is a discerner, because it's alive, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How powerful is the Bible? Well, the Bible's like a mirror. And it gives us an accurate reflection of who we truly are. Now, all of us have been to a fun house where you look at the one mirror and all of a sudden you're skinny. And you look at the one mirror and you're fat. You look at the other mirror and you're all wibbly wobbly. And you go back to the skinny one and say, I want to stay here. But the Bible gives you an accurate clear vision of yourself. Every blemish, every impurity, everything that is wrong. This is why so many people do not like to read the Bible because they don't like the reflection they see. But that's how powerful the Bible is, is that it could give someone an accurate view of themselves. Not to be mean, but so that way they can see for themselves. We all have things in our life that we cannot see in ourselves, but others see so clearly. And what the Bible does is it shows us in a reflection what everyone else already sees. What others can easily see in our life that we've been blinded to. And God does that so we could fix it, so we could work on it, so we could trust in him, so we could do surgery. The Bible is a surgeon's tool and it could do a precise surgery and it's sharp enough to get everything and only the things that need to be. It's not a broadsword, it's a scalpel that is able to fine tune what needs to be adjusted within our life. Now, with understanding how powerful, how sharp the Word of God is, turn back with me to the book of Mark, the Gospel record of Mark in chapter 7. And with that backdrop, look back with me in verse number 13. And I want you to assimilate how powerful 
that statement that Jesus made in Mark chapter 7. Mark 7 and verse 13, he says, Making the word of God of none effect. As he's rebuking the Pharisees, he's saying, there are some things that you can do in your life, the way that you carry your life, the things that you hold on to, that makes it so the word of God is of none effect. If you're still using a, a word picture, can you imagine having a sword that you could cut through five people all at once? No problem. It's that sharp. But yet you go to battle and instead of the fighting the enemy with a sword unsheathed, they fight with a scabbard still on it. So they don't take it out. They just have the scabbard on. It doesn't matter how sharp the sword is. You're, all you're doing is beating people with a blunt instrument. You're not going to cut but you could bruise, you could break bones, you can harm, but you're not going to be able to do what that sword was intended to do. It made it of none effect. It made it so the instrument that you have, remember the Bible talks about in the book of Ephesians that the Bible is the sword of the spirit. It is our only offensive weapon in the spiritual warfare that we have. And when you're trying to fight a spiritual warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you go with a sword that's still wrapped up, you're not going to do very well. You're going to be made so you are useless in battle. Just beating someone with a stick and beating someone with a stick does not work well in a spiritual battle. And Jesus said that because of the things that you're doing, you're making the word of God of none effect. That is a draw-dropping statement. To think something as powerful as the Word of God that could do so much spiritual work is rendered useless in the hands of someone that doesn't have the life to back it up. So with that backdrop, let's now look at the context and let's see some of the things that prompt Jesus to say this. The first thing I want to show you is the culture ignored. The culture ignored. Notice with me in verse number 1. Mark chapter 7 and verse 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. Now at this time remember that the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes are becoming a little bit more antagonistic to Jesus. Now they're not openly against him, but they are privately against him. And they're at the stage now, they're trying to find something wrong. Something that they could accuse him on. Something that they could point out that Jesus is messed up, therefore the people shouldn't follow him. Notice in verse 2, And when they, the Pharisees, saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, unwashing hands, they found fault. They were looking for an excuse. They were looking for something they could point out and say, Jesus is wrong. You shouldn't follow him. He's messed up. You should not follow him. They were looking for a reason. May I tell you that if you're looking for fault, you will eventually find it. There's not a single one of us who's righteous. And even someone righteous like Jesus, they still found fault. They still found something wrong. If you are looking for something wrong in someone, you will find it. 
There are some times that people want to tell me the things that's wrong with me. My answer is, oh yeah, well you don't know about this and this and this. Let me tell you the other things that's wrong too. Let me help you out. We all have things that are messed up. And if you're looking for something wrong in someone, you can find it. Guaranteed. And they, because of their attitudes, they're looking for something wrong. They're looking for something to accuse him on. And then they said, we got it. We found it. We found exactly what it is. What is it that was so earth-shattering traumatic? What was the big conspiracy that they could put in all the pages that could accuse Jesus and cause him, the followers, to follow away? Notice what happened in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the traditions of the elders. I've always wondered, is there a seven-year-old boy who took the Bible and said, Mom, they didn't wash their hands, so I don't have to wash my hands. Now, is this what it's saying? Is it giving a biblical precedent not to wash your hands? Now, this is pretty important in our day and age right now. I mean, people just learned how to wash their hands, right? You wash your hands, you use soap and water, and you do friction and apply it and wash everything for 20 seconds, say happy birthday. I mean, we've just got through educating on how to wash your hands, and almost everybody knows how to wash their hands by now. It took all this time, but the people finally get it. Are we teaching the opposite now that we're not supposed to wash our hands? Is this the fault? Can you imagine someone going, no, can't follow Jesus, he doesn't wash his hands. What's going on here? What is it that's prompting this? For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not. Holding the traditions of the elder. And when they come from the marketplace, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received a hold as the washing of cups and the pots and the brazen vessels and of the tables. Now what is this speaking about? Well remember that the Hebrew people were separated by God and they were separated by God by circumcision by their, um, <coughs> and by their um, eating habits. Now the what has happened is that a tradition has been built up that in order to keep us clean from the unfilthy Gentile masses is that they came up with a ceremonial washing. For example, when they went to the marketplace, they didn't know everywhere where that meat had gone. It could have been from a Gentile farm, and now it is selling in the marketplace. It's almost like the radio announcer said, don't touch that dial, you don't know where it's been. They don't know where it's been. So in order to make sure that they are ceremonial clean, they would go through a big ordeal. I grab this meat, and because I want to wash it from the filth of all the Gentiles, I am washing my hands before you all to let you know that all the filth has gone away, and I am pure. I am one of God's people. Now, that, So it's not the same washing hands that we're talking about. They're washing their hands ceremonially to cleanse them and purify them from the filth of all those unwashed masses. And so anything they would get from the marketplace, anything that they would get, they would have this ceremonial washing. And it was more of an idea of to do. So you go ahead and you go to Walmart and you pick up a brand new plate set. So the wife wants some nice plates and it's beautiful and it's ornate and it's going to be the type of china that's displayed all year round and only come out once a year. 
and then you set it up nice and you have to be careful with it. And mom doesn't let anybody else wash hands because you don't want the kids to break it. I mean, it's that important. And so you bring it home. You unwrap it from your thing. And instead of using it right away, you ceremonially wash everything. I don't know what Gentile person touched this. What unfilthy heathen has touched this. So to make sure that I am not defiled in myself, I give this peace to God and say it will never be touched by unclean hands again. And this dish here. And it's all a big idea promoting how great and righteous they are because of their traditions. So they come and they're looking for fault. And so they watch the disciples go and they buy something in the marketplace. And they come back and say, hey, look, I found this good cob of corn. Look at how great it is. Let's go ahead and eat it. It's nice and roasted already. And they said, look, look, they did not dedicate that piece of corn to God. They did not wash the stink of the unwashed masses. They are making themselves impure. Because some Gentile had touched that piece of corn. And that Gentile dirtiness has gone inside of their body. And inside of their body they're now becoming unpure and unholy. And if they eat enough cobs of corn like that, they will no longer be pure God's people. Well, that's ridiculous. But they were looking and finally they found it. Now they can't wait. I get to go ask Jesus about this. And so... They have this big ceremony. We see that the disciples, they broke the culture. The culture was ignored. Which brings us to this thing here. Is the things that come out of man. The things that come out of man. Now to the Hebrew people, this culture was a big deal. This tradition that they had was such a big deal. That you could not be right with God unless you do this ceremony every time you eat. Every time you went to the marketplace. You have to make sure that you are pure before God. And the disciples said, ah, we're fine. We're just hungry. I'm going to eat. So they broke it. But they couldn't wait. So the things that come out of man. So now... <clears throat> Uh, if you could let me back up. We see first of all the commandments of men. So they see the culture broken. And then we see the commandments of men. So they run up to Jesus. And they can't wait. Now they don't want to accuse Jesus directly. So they have to say look and see what your disciples are doing. Notice with me verse 5. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him. Why walk not thy disciples. According to the tradition of the elders. But eat bread with un." washing hands. Again, I've always wondered if some seven-year-old takes that verse and shows their parents and gives them Bible proof why they don't need to wash their hands. Some kid is going to do it now, but uh, verse six, and he, this is Jesus, answered and said unto them, well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for the doctrines, the commandments of men. So what we have here is the Pharisees have accused the disciples. They're accusing Jesus in a roundabout way. But they say, look at your disciples. I thought you were a righteous man. I thought you were a pure man. I thought you were the one chosen from God. There's no way someone would like that would allow their disciples to get away with that. I wouldn't let my pupils get away with that. Why do you allow your disciples to get away with it? Jesus said, that's not the problem. The problem is your heart. 
your heart is far from you. You see, with every ceremony that they're doing, they're not saying how great God is. They're saying how great they are. And they put on a big display for everyone to know how righteous and great they are. Now, this wasn't just for the Pharisees. This was a tradition that most of the Hebrew people had adopted during that time. And so many people were doing this, but especially the Pharisees. This is how they proved that they were right with God. This is how they proved their relationship with God. But Jesus said, no, 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 that's not the problem. He says, how be it in vain. That word vain means empty. How be it in vain do they worship me? Do you know that God doesn't accept all worship? He doesn't. The Bible talks about in John chapter 4 that God is a spirit and they that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. That word must is an important word. It means must. It means you have to do it. That same word must is used in the chapter before in John chapter 3 where Jesus said unto Nicodemus, Verily, verily, ye must be born again. What does that mean? That means the only way that you could go to heaven is if you're born again. Well, remember when he talked to Nicodemus, Nicodemus scratched his old silver head and said, I don't get it. It's not like I could crawl back into mom. How does this work? And Jesus explained to Nicodemus that in order to go to heaven, you have to have two births. You have to have a physical birth and you have to have a spiritual birth. And just as real as your physical birth is, the spiritual birth is just as real. For example, we have several kids that are in here. If one of the kids went up to their mother and said, mom, was I born? The first thing she would do was laugh at him and say, of course you were. But mom, how do you know I was born? She goes, I was there. And she could give a time and a place where that child was born. More than that, there's evidence they're alive right now. You could pinch them, you could touch them, you could feel them. They're, they take up space. You could smell them. There's evidence that they're there right now. Especially if they don't have washed hands. You could definitely smell them. Now, Just as real as the first birth was, the spiritual birth is just as real. There comes a time in someone's life where they realize that they're a sinner. And because of their sin, that they have offended a holy, righteous God, and they deserve to be separated from God from all eternity into an awful place called hell. Now that's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus Christ, who was God, robed himself in flesh and came on this earth and lived the same life that you and I lived. He went through the same temptations, the same troubles, and the same heartbreaks. Then he died on the cross to pay for all of your sins. Every single one. And what's more is he did it for free. The Bible says that for the wages of sin is death. That because of our sin, we owe God death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To go to heaven, you don't have to go to church. To go to heaven, you don't have to pay money to the church. To go to heaven, you don't have to help little old ladies cross the street. Now, all those things are good things and things that we ought to do. But those things don't get us to heaven. The only thing that gets us to heaven is that we accept the free gift that Jesus gave to us. That we accept that he died on the cross for your sins and for mine. He was buried on a borrowed tomb to prove that he was dead. And then on the third day he rose again to live forevermore. 
and that he's alive right now. I serve a risen Savior. And because he lives, he also has the power to forgive my sins. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ proved two things. It proved that Jesus was God and it proved that God was satisfied with the payment that was Jesus made. All I have to do is accept the terms, accept the gift. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. To circle back around to where we were at, John chapter 3, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's you and me, for whosoever shall believe believe in him shall not perish or go to that awful place called hell, but have everlasting life. Jesus made that gift for you and for me. And this is when he's telling Jesus, John 3.16 is in the context of the conversation Jesus is having. He says, verily, verily, ye must be born again. Meaning that there is no other way to be forgiven of your sins other than you being born again. And it is an event. There should be a time and a place. You not, may not remember all the details, but there should be a time and a place where you personally accepted Christ as your Savior and you became a new creature as God the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And if something as big as God comes to live in something as small as my heart, there's going to be some changes. There's evidence of it. We're born again. We are, have a brand new birth. Well, just like Jesus has said, verily, verily, you must be born again. Jesus says in the next chapter, John chapter 4, that <laughs> they that worship God, the true worshipers, must worship me in spirit and in truth. Those are two qualifications. And God does not accept all worship. So here are these Pharisees that believe they're doing God a favor by washing off all the stink of the Pharisees. God, you see how righteous I'm trying to be? You can see that I am dedicated to you? And God says, it doesn't impress me. That's not what I'm looking for. Your heart is so far away from God. You know, someone could be very loud and vocal. Oh, I love Jesus Christ. But their heart can be so far away from him. It's a matter of the heart. And this is where Jesus starts driving. It's not the outside. You know what we like to do? We like to look in the outside. We often put the standard, the metric of being right with God on how well someone looks, how long their hair is, how short their hair is, what they're wearing, how they're doing. Do they carry a Bible? But that's not the metric that God uses. It's the inside of the heart. Now, I'm not saying the outside's not important. We believe that if God changes you from the inside, it will show up on the outside. But someone could whitewash a fence and it'd still be rotten wood in the inside. God wants to work on us and from the inside out. That's why we love anyone. If someone came through those doors and had a mohawk, a green mohawk, and a earring and a cheek ring and a nose ring and they had a chain going from the earring to the cheek ring to the nose ring we would be glad for them to come in we would be glad to have them set in make them feel welcome on normal circumstances we would have someone sit beside them and let them feel welcome why because god loves them and god wants to do something with them and god wants to help them and we want to do the same thing we want to take people from where they are and move them on and work with them. But the Pharisees wouldn't have anything of that. Unless you're perfectly righteous all the time. And like us. But that was the problem. Like them. 
They wanted people to look at them where God was looking at the heart. So Jesus is continuing to describe them. Notice as he goes on in verse 7. How be it in vain they worship me for the doctrines of the commandments of men. Now to studying the English language, English grammar is so important to grasping the Bible. Notice the word uh, doctrines here is in the plural. This is important. Doctrines. Do you know that every time it talks about Bible doctrine in the Bible, it's always in the singular case. Because there's no such thing as Bible doctrines. There is one doctrine and many aspects of the same doctrine. It's all about Jesus Christ. And so if you have a doctrine that's incorrect, it gives you a wrong view of Jesus Christ. Doctrine, when it refers to God's work and God's beliefs, God's standards, God's <laughs> belief and teaching, is always in the singular case. But every time it talks about the doctrines, it's talking about the doctrines of men, things that men have made up that don't match the Bible. That's an important distinction. He's saying, you're following the doctrines, the commandments of men. You're coming up with your own idea of how things are, but that's not what the Bible says. Verse number 8. For the laying aside of the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things you do. Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. So here's the problem. You have the traditions that have been developed over time, and when they meet the word of God, they choose the traditions rather than what the Bible says. Now, where do the traditions come from? Traditions come from the idea that something slowly develops to take care of a need, to uh, come up with this idea to how to do something, and it develops over time, and it takes a life of its own. We all have traditions in our life, and there are baptistic traditions that are not necessarily biblical traditions, and we have to be careful of them because we have to stand where the Bible stands and depend on what the Bible stands, especially when those things are in conflict. If you could uh, allow me a little wee leeway, I usually avoid telling stories like this, but when I was in the Air Force, they told us and taught us how Air Force policy was made. You interested? They said Air Force policy is like this. It's like having a cage full of monkeys. And at the end of the cage, there's a ramp that leads up. And oftentimes, there is a bushel of bananas that is sitting on top of the ramp. And then the monkeys, all they have to do is crawl, climb up the ramp and grab the banana. It's all theirs. So every time the monkeys get in the cage and they look up, oh, we can get the bananas. They run up the ramp. And as soon as they hit the ramp, they take a, a big water hose and spray all the monkeys down and make them tumble down. And every time they go up to grab a, a banana, they get sprayed. Well, after a while, none of the monkeys in the cage go for the bananas anymore. So, after none of the monk original monkeys go for the a banana, they replace one of the original monkeys with a brand new monkey. Well, the monkey looks up the ramp, sees the bananas, and he says, guess what? I'm going to get a banana. And as he goes up to the cage, no water hose is sprayed, but the other monkeys pull the other monkey down and beat him down and hold him back until he no longer goes for the bananas. Then you take another original monkey, replace him with another one. The same thing happens, that he goes 
up towards the ramp. And as soon as he's going to the ramp, no water hose. But the other monkeys pull him down and beat him down and hold him down. Until you replace all the original monkeys and you have brand new monkeys who have never been sprayed with a water hose. And they say, why aren't you going for the bananas? Because that's the way it's always been done. That's how someone explained how Air Force policy came to me one time. No one knows. It just happened. We just do it because this is what we're told. Well, the same thing with traditions. So some of these traditions come up and you don't know where in the world they came from. You just know this is how we've always done it. This is how they always do it. They say this at this time, and they stand up at this time, and they do this symbol every now and again, and they do this. I don't know where it came from. I just know this is what we're supposed to do. And that becomes so ingrained in people that when it comes in conflict with the Bible, they have a hard time leaving the tradition and replacing it with the Bible because the tradition takes more importance, more value than the Word of God. This is what's happened to the Pharisees. They built up so many traditions, so many things that have been kept up from their elders that when it comes to the word of God, they can't obey it. They don't obey it in order to keep their traditions. This is what Jesus is teaching. Now notice as he goes on. You guys have been listening patiently. Verse number 10. For Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother. Whosoever curseth father or mother, let him die the death. So he says, let me give you an example. We know that the commandments, we have the Ten Commandments. One of those commandments says to honor thy father and thy mother. That word honor carries the idea of respect. Do you know that there's never a time in your life where you are not supposed to keep that commandment? Now, you may not have to obey them anymore, but there's never a time where you will not honor your parents. You are always to work on honoring your parents, no matter if they're right or they're wrong. Then he goes by and says, it says in the law that they even have a, uh, a commandment, a law that says if you have a child that's a glutton, that refuses to work, that's disrespectful, that you can actually take him to the town hall, put him on trial, and he could be ordered to death. That's actually a thing. And a parent can say, look, this is what it says. You are to honor me at all times. And a child who does it, you are worthy of death. Now, that's a clear commandment. You are always to honor them. So Jesus said, you remember that commandment? That's pretty important. But he says, verse number 11, but ye say, so when he uses that word, but it's opposite of, here's the clear commandments of God. But what ye say, if a man shall go to his father or mother, it is Korobin, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And you suffer him no more to do aught for his father or for his mother. So here's the scenario that it has been given to the firstborn son to take care of his parents. So as his parents get older, they can no longer work to make sure that they have the medicine, the food, everything they need. It was the responsibility of the children to take care of the parents. Amen. They're always to honor them. However, these Pharisees did a workabout. They went up to their parents and say, parents, I know that you're getting older and you're going to require care, but I want to let you know I've dedicated myself to God and everything that I have, and I can no longer give you any extra gifts because I'm giving it to God. I love you. I hope you survive. What well, does that sound right? Well, that sounds religious. But Jesus said, no, you're still supposed to take care of your parents. There is no wraparound that says, nope, I'm supposed to take care of God, so I'm not going to take care of my parents. He says, what you're doing is you're keeping your tradition and you're removing the word of God. 
The Bible says this, but you say this. It's opposite. It doesn't work. Verse number 12. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which you have delivered, and many such like things ye do. He says, there's lots of other things you do. Here's one example. And that's a big example. That you're no longer taking care of your mother and father. You're no longer taking care of them, sending them money, making sure they have food. Because you're so super spiritual, you've dedicated to God. You made the word of God of none effect. Do you think when people look at your parents dying and, why don't they say and visit me? I'm starving, I don't have any food. Do you think people are like, man, that's a really righteous guy there. You're looking at someone who's disobeyed God's word. You've made the word of God of none effect. You've made it so it's no longer sharp in your hands. It doesn't work that way. So we see here the commandments of men, which brings us to the last thing. The things that come out of men. Verse number 14. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. So after he gets through talking with the Pharisees, and they didn't like his answer, he pulls the rest of the disciples aside and says, Here, let me teach you something about what you just heard. Verse 15. There was nothing from without a man that entereth into him that can defile him. But the things which come out of him those are they that defile him. If a man have ears to hear, let him hear. Whenever you see that phrase, if a man have ears to hear, let him hear, Jesus is putting emphasis and say, this is important. You make sure you catch this. You make sure you understand this. Well, the disciples didn't quite catch this, so they pull him aside and ask him more about it. Verse 17. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked concerning the parable. So Jesus, can you explain to us what you were talking about? Verse 18. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into a man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth into the draught, purging all meats. So Jesus says, all right, you didn't understand. Let me see if I can explain it. Let's say that you go to Burger King or Taco Bell and you take the meats and you don't know who prepared it. So you don't ceremonially dedicate your hamburger to God and say it's unwashed from the filth of the world. But you know what you do when you get that hamburger? You eat it. And when you eat it, God has designed our body to work in a certain way. So when you eat that hamburger, it doesn't hit your heart. When you eat that Taco Bell, it doesn't ooze into your heart. What it does is it goes through the mouth, you chew it up, it gets smaller bits, it goes down the esophagus. As it goes to the esophagus, it goes into the stomach. Now the stomach is pretty powerful. The stomach acids in, inside of it is equivalent to hydrochloric acid, and it burns away pretty much everything that goes into it. The acids eat away, and that hamburger that you put down, and some of those people who haven't learned how to chew your food well, it comes in big bites, but it dissolves. Then what it does is it goes into the lower intestines, and the lower intestines, what it does is it sucks away all the nutrients that your body needs from that hamburger, if it had anything, if you get Taco Bell, who knows what gets sucked in. And it goes into... <laughs> And it sucks in all the nutrients and the waste go down. It now goes into the large intestines where it sits until finally it comes out of you. This is called the alimentary canal. All right? No time did it ever enter into your heart. Now, it is good for you, but God has designed the system so if there happened to be 
a bacteria, a microorganism inside of your hamburger, let me tell you there is, that you're not going to die. If you're healthy, when you eat the hamburger, your body will take care of the things that you put inside of your mouth and eat it. So if you eat a hamburger, you do not automatically become a heathen. You don't become an unwashed master. You're no longer right with God because you ate a hamburger. I ate a hamburger. I ate a greasy cheeseburger with bacon with extra uh, A1 sauce and some barbecue sauce. And I mixed it together. And now I'm no longer right with God. That's not how it works. The hamburger does not determine whether you're right or wrong with God. It's not what you put into your body that makes you right or wrong with God. It's what comes out of your body. It's what's already in there in the first place. Notice with me verse 20. And he said, that which cometh out of a man, that defileth a man. So what comes from within the man that comes out? Verse 21. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. Did that evil thought come from the outside? No. It came from your own noggin. Let me tell you, we're all evil. The heart is deceitful. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? You do not need to be taught how to have bad thoughts. They're already in there. That which comes out of you, that's what defiles you. It says evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemies, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. What we learn here is that it's not this ceremony of washing your hands that make you right with God. You should wash your hands. Washing your hands is good. We've learned that in the last couple months. But it's not the Taco Bell that you may eat eventually that makes you a bad, evil person. It's your evil heart that makes you a bad, evil person. It's the heart that needs to be taken care of. You can put on the best clothes you have. You can actually comb your hair or get a haircut when we're allowed. And you can look good on the outside. But it may not change you the inside. God is more interested in changing your inside and letting it show up on your outside than whitewashing it. It's the inside where we're the most evil. And you say, I need proof of that? Turn off your TV. Turn off your internet. Get all by yourself in a room for a couple hours and you'll find out how evil your heart is. It doesn't take much. We're evil already. And when we allow those things to come out, that's the proof that we're evil. We need God's help. That's what needs to be taken care of. That's what needs to be washed clean. And by the way, Jesus can forgive all of our sins when we accept him as Savior. After we're saved, we need a spiritual bath every now and again. That's why we have 1 John 1, 9. For if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We confess our sin to God. God, I shouldn't be thinking this way. I need your help. He says, I'll be glad to help. God, I'm having problems with bitterness. I really want to choke the life out of that guy. That may have happened a couple times the last couple months, but let me tell you that you go to God and say, God, 
I need your help. And he will. He wants to change you from the inside out. He wants to even change your thinking and your heart. He wants to change who you are. And it will show up on the outside. But it's just change and work on the outside. It doesn't hit the problem. The problem's the inside. So what do we get from all of this? We understand that the traditions of men and the sinful heart of man can make God's word of none effect. We all know good examples, and hopefully you're not one of them. Good examples of someone who seems super religious, but because of their traditions or because of the evilness of their heart, you don't want to listen the Bible from them. They could say, well, you know what? What the Bible says, I don't care to hear it from you because of the way that you live. You just robbed a bank. Why do I want to hear you say what the Bible says? You just got through cursing out that guy. And you want to turn around and tell me how I need to be nice to people? They make the word of God of none effect. They, want it, they make it so you don't want to listen to what the Bible says. When you see someone who's working on the outside and their inside is so rotten, it's just spewing out of them. You don't want to accept what the word of God says from them. They make the word of God, which is powerful, of none effect. Now, this is important for us because the word of God is our only offensive weapon that we have in this spiritual warfare. Now, we could cheat and pray. That's great. And you should pray. But doing battle, we need the word of God. The word of God is what we need. We need to be in the Bible every day. We need to learn how to use it because it is a powerful tool. But when our life does not back up the message we say, it makes it so people do not listen to it. They turn it off and they will not be helped no matter what our intentions are. We have to make sure that we are bound on the word of God and allowing God to continue to work on us on the inside. So that way we can use the word of God to be a help to someone else. What a powerful statement to make the word of God of none effect. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you. Thank you.